0: Device
1: Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation, your home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Twix in times of Milky Way. I refuse to eat anything that has the word nougat in it. They advertise Milky Way as low-fat. You're eating a candy bar. You clearly don't care about such things. You know, not only do I love the taste of a Twix bar, I honestly just love the commercials. The guy does something really stupid. Everything freezes. He has a Twix bar and sorts it all out. Man, I wish I had something like that in the OR. So, Kevin, what is the barometric pressure in the room on the Kelvin scale If I use a 3.5 millimeter head in conjunction with this extended offset rep eats Twix bar, that would be 3.14 millimeters, doctor. Boom. Done. A tech I was talking to the other day wishes he had had a Twix bar as he relayed this story. Very slender girl that he had known from school. He saw her. She had what appeared to be a basketball on her stomach. And he said, congratulations. I didn't know you were pregnant. She said, I'm not pregnant. He said, oh, come on. I know you're pregnant. The husband chimed in. She's not pregnant. A third time he went deeper into this hole. I know you're pregnant. Come on. And then it got a little heated. She's not pregnant. He looked at me and said, what was I thinking? Why did I have to die on that hill? Why did I have to argue a third time over whether or not she was pregnant? I asked him, why is there not a school for these things to teach us young men what not to do. So we don't have to step on that landmine. And then it hit me that so much of our lives is based around the anecdotal, right? People aren't there teaching you all these things or saying, hey, do this, do that. It's stuff we just have to learn first person. And that's a problem. Let's look at that word anecdotal. If you've been in medical device sales, you have heard this word over and over again. Anecdotal, not necessarily true or reliable because it's based on personal accounts. Circle that in your mind rather than facts or research. And we usually use that in context of comparing it against something. In this case, that something is peer review. So let's look at anecdotal for just a second. I contend that we live life largely, not only personally, but professionally, anecdotally. We have personal situations. We make stupid decisions like asks people if they're pregnant when they're not. We go through life bumbling around for a Twix bar to work things out, and that's just how we do life. Now, the problem with living life anecdotally is that it's limited as it involves a cohort of one, and that is you. It's tainted by perception, which is shaped by life experiences that are exclusive to just you. My daughter and I love parks and Wreck, and we have this dry, sarcastic humor that we use with each other regularly. And we were doing it just riffing back and forth about something. And a lady that was listening to us talk, she thought we hated each other. And it was a perception thing. She didn't realize we, we love each other very much. And sarcasm is a way that we show love. And since she was dealing in the cohort of one, she was absolutely horrified by it all. Her perception, since she was not a very sarcastic person, was tainted and thinking somebody was meaning something that they actually weren't. And one last thing I've noticed about living anecdotally, so to speak, right, is that we have a challenge defense mechanism. When somebody challenges us on anything, our first reaction is to shut down or put on the boxing gloves. It's time to fight. I worked with a surgeon who said to anybody who would listen, I don't have complications. I don't have revisions when across the street, a surgeon in a competing practice was busy revising all of this surgeon's failed implants and sending us pictures of them. It got so bad, he had to call the surgeon on the phone and say, look, I'm revising a lot of your cases over here. You need to check it out and find out what's going wrong. The surgeon still couldn't hear it. That challenge defense mechanism was in effect, and he just couldn't hear it. This takes us back to the definition of anecdotal, not necessarily true or reliable because it's based on personal accounts. So was this surgeon having revisions? Absolutely was. Was I speaking my daughter's love language? Absolutely I was. Anecdotally, people believed something that was not true. I love this quote by Theodore Roosevelt. In the long run, the most unpleasant truth is a safer companion than a pleasant falsehood. Isn't that good? So what is the ideal mechanism to uncover that unpleasant truth and at the same time rid ourselves of the distortions that are inherent in the anecdotal? Well, it's peer review. The peer review process subjects a person's work to the scrutiny of others who are experts in the same field. Now, as an aside, you are under peer review whether you like it or not. Your life is constantly under peer review. I caught the end of that just the other day. I got a message that some administrative person was upset at me because you left your boxes out in the hall. Well, it turns out I really didn't. Somebody in house cleaning pushed my boxes out in the hall And then I got blamed for doing it. So I just had to lay low, take one for the team. But it hit me that everything we do is under peer review. But where things really hit the road is when we voluntarily subject what we're doing to the scrutiny of others. Now, I will say firsthand, this takes courage because we have that challenge defense mechanism that we talked about, right? Putting your stuff out there, putting your precious, as Gollum would say in Lord of the Rings, letting somebody else come back with a sledgehammer and smash it into a thousand pieces. That's not fun. It's terrible, actually. So it takes a lot of courage to subject what you're doing to peer review. And to be quite frank, it takes a lot of humility as well to subordinate what you think about your work, your idea, your way of selling to the opinions of others. But one thing it offers is, again, addressing the limitations that we talked about in living life anecdotally because that cohort of one doesn't give us a good perspective. I work as a contributing editor for the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, a great publication, and I, for reasons that are inexplicable to me, volunteered to edit an article that was dealing with some bowel complications after total joint arthroplasty. As I started reading it, I thought, what have I done? (laughs) I have nothing to offer here, but I am a good copy editor in the sense that I know grammatical errors, misspellings, Uh, Annoyingly so sometimes, but uh, I am not that person, by the way, on social media that will totally discount everything you said because you didn't put an apostrophe in something. There are those people out there and they drive me insane, but that's not what I do. But I am a decent copy editor, so I thought, you know, I'm going to bring just that skill set to this article and leave the heavy lifting for some of the clinical issues to the other people that were asked to review this particular article. And I thought, there is power in that. It was profound to me. Just like in Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, The Dirty Dozen, what makes those movies fun is that you bring these people with all these different skill sets to the table that have different perspectives to pull off the greatest bank robbery of all time, right? The show would be boring if George Clooney organized a group of seven safe crackers that plot line is going nowhere and that plot line doesn't translate well for us personally as we intentionally subject where we're looking and where we're looking is where we're going right as we intentionally put that out there for peer review we don't want six or seven safe crackers we want a practical person. We want a creative person. We want a CPA in the mix there. People that have strengths that we don't have. I test high in the visionary and the strategic. I am a kite without a string. Like many reps in this audience, we need people who can function as a string for us. We need people that are iconoclasts. I love that word. I know the technical definition is somebody who destroys religious artifacts or basically just comes against the establishment. But you know, we need iconoclastic people that are outside the box and willing to just throw convention to the wind. And sometimes letting somebody take a sledgehammer to what you're thinking, the act of rebuilding it gives you a perspective and shows you some things that could literally mean the difference between success and failure. Let's marinate on all that this week. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we do live most of our life anecdotally, and there's so much more to be gained if we can just try to turn the dial a little bit and intentionally begin the process of subjecting what we're doing to good, solid peer review, whether it's what we're doing at work, what we're doing in our marriages, our relationships, our child rearing, on and on. Rather than just blunder through this thing and hoping there's a Twix bar nearby, uh, Twix Life, that's going to be my new sticker on my car. I need people who don't think like me offering opinions, and then I need to be willing to listen and not put my boxing gloves on because you insulted my precious. It's a work in process. Well, someone who has an amazing business model in process out in Colorado Springs is our guest today, Dr. Daniel Paul. And what he is doing is so exciting, I decided that to bring the maximum value to you, the listener, I would enlist the help of my own peer review in real time and bring on the show Dr. Matt Barber to help me form some of the questions because I think what Dr. Paul is doing is important. He is an iconoclast in the best of ways in that so much of what he's doing is challenging some institutional ways of doing things, but it has the patient at the center of it, the surgeon-patient relationship, bringing that back around to what works for him. So a huge thank you to Dr. Barber and a huge Device Nation welcome to Dr. Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Hey, Gavin, Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Paul, this is a very special episode of Device Nation we're running. Uh, we're doing a BOGO promotion this episode. You buy one interviewer at full price, you get the second one free. Sitting beside me in the studio is LinkedIn Luminary, Dr. Matt Barber. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Dr. Paul, I think that what you're doing is significant enough to warrant an extra set of eyes and ears, so to speak, and give it the attention it deserves. So before we get there, our primary reason for getting together today, I'd love to hear about your journey. Let's go back. What put you on the path to a career in medicine?
2: When I was a kid, it's not like I planned on going into medicine. No one in my family was in medicine. I come from a long line of engineers. You know, My dad was an engineer. His dad was an engineer, and so on and so on. It was a fateful day, which was for me it's December twenty eighth, nineteen ninety nine. I was fourteen years old, and I was skiing, and it was my first run that year. And I unfortunately had a pretty bad skiing accident where I skied into a tree, and uh, I suffered a bilateral femur fractures, so a left femur uh, fracture, and a right radius ulna fracture. I kind of went from you know, being half dead to getting all fixed up, and wow. you know, you know, got rods in my femurs, and you know, plates and screws, all that, all the good stuff, and I went back to kind of a normal life, not too long after I mean it was a recovery process but you know the scheme of things it wasn't long well. and I said this is kind of amazing and that kind of turned me on to really the world of orthopedics I said this is pretty cool this is what I want to do since then I just kind of put my head down and it kind of ran forward with it if this skiing accident never happened I would probably be an engineer
1: so you went on to medical school in uh, my old stomping ground Miami Florida the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine what was your experience like there
2: Oh, I had an excellent experience there. So when I went to medical school there, they had something called the regional campus that was actually up in kind of the uh, uh, Boca area. And I thought it was great. It is, you know, I could I could walk to the beach. The education was excellent. It was, uh, you know, after spending all the time in the Northeast where I grew up in the cold weather, it was a pretty nice place, you know, to spend four years kind of in your, your mid-late 20s. I had a good time down there and I got a good education. I only have good things to say about it
1: talking about opposites, you went from Miami, Florida to Toledo, Ohio. I always feel like I need to say holy Toledo for some reason. It's just stuck in my head. You did your orthopedic residency there. I know you did some work, uh, God's work at Shriners Hospital. That had to be quite an experience. Tell us about uh, your time there.
2: When I was in Miami, you know, I matched to to Toledo. And so Telling someone in Miami that you're going to Toledo, Ohio, it doesn't quite register. Right. So they go, "Oh, where are you going? I'm going. I'm going to Toledo, Ohio." And we just see this blank stare for right. like five seconds. And they say, uh, do, you, "Do you have family there?" I go, "No." And then that was the end of the conversation because <laughs> <laughs> for someone in Miami, Toledo, Ohio might as well be you know the Arctic tundra of like somewhere up in Alaska. You know, they don't really know. Sure. But I really liked it there. It was a great place to do residency, and um, you know, Ohio is a really great state. It's, um, you know, there, there's a mentality kind of in that area, of the Midwest where it's like, you know, we know we've got some issues, but we're going to make it better. And they're very committed to like a lot of pride in the state of Ohio and really making it better. And uh, that was nice. Also, you know, for residency, you're working so much. It doesn't really matter where you are too much. You know, you know, you could be in the middle of New York city or San Francisco and it doesn't really matter. You're going to be in that hospital all the time in that regard. You know, it's fine. The cost of living was low. The only thing I didn't like was the road construction, which is out of all the places I've lived, that's the absolute worst. I mean, man, all you see is orange cones as far as the eye can see. Go back to what you mentioned, the Schreiner's Hospital I was looking up to do a pediatric rotation down in Lexington. And that was phenomenal. That was a phenomenal place to learn and work for a little bit. I mean, that was all about education. Uh, the cases were great. Um, the people were great. And I really, it was really a benefit to be able to spend some time down there.
1: You went on to SUNY for a hand fellowship, and I believe that may be where Easy Orthopedics was born. Tell us about that whole experience and, and about uh, about that fellowship.
2: You know, I decided at 14 years old I'm going to do orthopedics, and at that point you kind of put your head down and just hammer away. You know, you realize it's like, okay, I got to get good grades, I got to get into college, I got to get you know, I got to get into medical school. You get into medical school, well, now I got to get into residency. Well, now I get into residency. Now, I got to get into fellowship. And, like, you never really have time to pick your head up and look around at what the ecosystem looks like. You're just so concentrated on getting through and moving to the next step. So, and I look, I like hand surgery. Um, and when I got there after a little while, I'm like, okay, well, now the next step is for me to find a job. So, let me look for a job. Now, my wife is from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And at this point, I've been dragging her all over the country. Florida, Ohio, to New York. And, you know, I always said, we're going to go back to Colorado. You know, we've got family here. Um, and as far as I see, you got to live close to the family one way or another, you know, um, especially if you have kids and we've got a young one. So that was what we wanted to do. And it's like, I can't find a job out here. Or the ones I find, you know, it's a competitive market. It's, um, you know, they want you taking their entire general call, you know, like every single day or you're talking like four-month guarantee, and, you know, it's not just me. I've talked to other docs who've tried to come out to Colorado, and it can be very tough. So it was just kind of – so that was part, you know, part one. Part two was I interviewed out for a job in Connecticut, and all I could see was the senior partner being really bitter about how he used to make so much money in the late 80s early, or the early 90s and, like, you know, how bitter he is today. And, you know, I talked to his junior partner out there, and I'm like, hey, are you happy there? I just asked him that, you know he's like, well, it's getting better. And I'm like, you're miserable. You know what I mean? And it's like the senior, you know, he's in sports. And, uh, you know, senior partners have, you know, full case schedules. And God forbid they throw one his way. You know what I mean? Right. And those things are going on. And then I kind of have a family crisis of sorts. So it was just like existential and like personal crisis all at the same time. And I, I probably for the first time, I picked my head up, you know, and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, there's um you always think of light at the end of the tunnel, light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it was just this realization that it's a series of tunnels. You know? I'm sure. <laughs> just in this like loop of tunnels with like, this kind of the, uh, you know, light up between the tunnels. And um so I kind of went rogue, you know, I um I, I quit my fellowship, I broke my lease and I just moved out to Colorado. And I'm like, Well what am I gonna do? And, you know, Looking around, I had one friend from medical school, and he does primary care, and he's down in the south. He's down in South Beach, and he started this house call practice. And not only was he happier than anybody I knew, um, you know, he was also doing better financially than anybody else I knew. So it was kind of this. I don't really know if this is going to work, but I'm just going to go for it. So that was kind of how everything started. I know I'm an orthopedic doc. I'm not a primary care doc. And I don't know what this looks like for orthopedics, but let's see if I can't figure it out. And that was kind of the start of the journey. And I mean, I had to figure a lot of things out. Like, what does this look like? How does this work? You know? And at the time, um, I was living with my in-laws. living in the basement of my in-laws, my wife and my kids, um, trying to figure this thing out. You know, meanwhile, friends coming out of fellowship, their colleagues, you know, making hundreds of thousands. And I'm here rubbing two sticks together in the basement. But that was the start of the journey,
0: Daniel. this is Matt in hearing about your practice i mean that that is exactly what comes to mind is this model of direct primary care, which I don't know if if the audience is entirely familiar with that, but is sort of a an offshoot if you will of that that concierge type care uh particularly in primary care where somebody pays basically a retainer amount to a a physician and they take care of them, uh, for the year, uh, on a cash basis. And obviously an, an internist armed with a lot of knowledge and and a few good lab studies can take care of a ton of stuff for a patient on a, a pretty low cost basis. I've always been intrigued with this idea of how this translates to really not just orthopedics, but anything surgical, you know, where you've got hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers and things involved and sometimes implants and i mean was there anybody else doing anything similar or any kind of model you went from or did you just jump in this thing
2: no i mean yes and no i mean the only models i had were based on primary care so there wasn't any orthopedic model i mean i had to figure out everything from you know from scratch like what does this look like for the specialty and just to kind of you know i think something that is, as i find confusing is good to clear up is the difference between so you're right, direct primary care doctors, the basic idea. A patient says, hey, let me pay you $100 a month or whatever it is. And the direct primary care doctor says, that's great. I don't take any insurance. Um, you can come see me as much as you want. You can get labs at cost. You can get medications at cost. They have a lower patient panel. They can call and text their doctor. To me, I think it's better uh, medical care. And uh, usually the doctor is much happier, right? They're not dealing with insurance or hospitals or anything. And the patient is too. So that's kind of your direct primary care world. And that's been around since the, probably 2010. And, it's been expanding. Um, concierge medicine, which kind of people conflate the two, is really when you have an insurance-based practice, and then you build a patient on top of that. Meaning that you, you build them for insurance. And you say, "Hey, if you want extra access to me, it's you know a thousand dollars a year, or 2000 or They tend to be more expensive, but it's, it's a subtlety there. And you know, when you talk about concierge, you think of like you know like high society type stuff. In direct primary care, there's a lot of you know small business owners or people that don't have insurance, and it ends up being a really excellent option for them to get high-quality medical care. Figuring this out for orthopedics, I mean, there's a lot of things to figure out. The first and foremost is that I don't take any insurance, and I think that's super important. The model I'm doing is completely incompatible with that. If I were to take insurance, I would have to hire five people. And by the way, my office staff is me and my wife, and they for a while was just me. (laughs) And that's all I need right now. I would need to hire five billers and coders. And like, and then all of a sudden, okay, well, now I need to pay these five billers and coders. You know, I need to see a lot of people. And all of a sudden, you're running this volume-based game, volume-based practice. So it's high overhead, high volume practice in the insurance world. You know, you end up spending less time with patients. And in my opinion, you do worse job. You know, it's like asking someone to paint the wall of a house. Here, you can spend as long as you think you need to paint this wall and do a good job. Or here's 10 minutes to paint this wall. I mean, you can do it may not necessarily be a good job, but you can do it. I think that's kind of the ecosystem now in orthopedics. If you're seeing 50 people a day, which, you know, some of these guys who are really busy are, I mean, you don't or have more. a lot of time with the patient, right. Or more. yeah, I've seen it. I mean, you can come up with a diagnosis and treatment plan pretty quick, but it doesn't mean the patient understands, you know, what the hell you're talking about. Oh, what is it? What did the doctor say? I don't know something with my elbow, but I need surgery. Next week. You know, that's not, that's not, it's not good care. I mean, even if you meet the standards of care by definition, it's a different model. It's, it's, it's low overhead, much lower volume, and I spend a long time with people. It's, um, and I've taken this from the direct primary care doc Instead of a transactional-based appointment, it's relationship-based, meaning that I just spend more time when you really develop more of a relationship. And I think that leads to higher quality of care, in my opinion. Same doctor, right? But just the business sure. model of delivery is different. And I think it's superior. But, yeah, if you're stuck in this insurance world, I mean, the problem is it's not static. So your overhead goes up as time goes on because insurance companies are not incentivized to pay you. And what that means is they make you jump through more hoops. Not only does that waste your time, you need to hire more staff, more staff, higher higher overhead, not to mention office space requirements that you need. I mean, how many of these offices have just a whole floor, a whole area just for fillers? And then... You know, overtime reimbursements go down. So you end up working harder, making less. And in my opinion, delivering crappier care as you see more and more people. But that's kind of the core of the business model. So, yeah, I don't take any insurance. I don't take Medicare. I don't take TRICARE. Don't, not, don't take Medicaid. No, nothing. And because of that, you know, I'm super lean. You know, even my medical record system. What do you really need in a medical record system? You need something that keeps notes for you. And that's HIPAA compliant I don't need an EMR that people buy. I mean, those are made for billing. That's why doctors don't like them. It turns doctors into billers. Docs don't like that, and um, they're clunky and they're expensive. I pay twelve dollars a month per user for my HIPAA compliant Google Drive through G Suite, and it's just templated Word notes and orders, and that works perfectly.
0: It's relational, as you said, but it is it is transactional. But it's it's a transaction between you and the patient. We cut a lot of processors out of there in terms of insurers that are making you jump through hoops, and then, as you said, all the hoop jumpers that you have to hire uh, to make that process go. So that's a an interesting way to look at it. Have there been any any major roadblocks to it? What, what have been the, the hurdles for you?
2: So the roadblocks can be kind of significant. There's not too many roadblocks actually starting your practice. Buying supplies and everything is not too bad. Getting the surgery part set up was, was very difficult, and, and, and I'll tell you why. There's a surgery center in town, a local surgery center, not owned by the hospital, perfect, right? I go I talk with the CEO. He says literally these words, I'd love to have you here. Love to have your practice here. Great, right? Place to operate. Um, just go get admitting rights at this gigantic hospital down the street. Now, that poses two problems. One for me is that, hey, uh, I don't want to. <laughs> and the reason why I don't want to is because I don't really support these hospital systems in a lot of ways. I don't think they're the hospital systems of old that really provided community and charity care. They'll see somebody, a patient, essentially bankrupt them and send them the collections. And then they're nonprofits. So not only are they bankrupting people in the community, they're not paying taxes to the community either. And as a doctor, you know, you, you have all these MBAs and these other non-practicing physicians in management, and management that creates all these issues. So I fundamentally and philosophically don't agree with what they're doing. I mean, you need hospitals. I'm not saying that. It's just the way they've taken over care, I don't agree with. Um, but that's one point. The second point is, you know, they would force me into the call pool. I opted out of Medicare. Probably, I don't have an office. Well, I guess I kind of do now. At the time, I didn't. So that's not a great fit. But the real stumbling block is that somewhere on that credentialing board is another orthopedic surgeon. And as you know, we don't always get along that well with each other. And this is a chairman orthopedic <laughs> surgeon, you know, which is kind of a, a, type, a special type of breed. Um, and as a solo practitioner trying to go in in a competitive market and get admitting rights, they're just going to say no. We'll just deny you. So I had to find a way to work around that. Um, you know, and, uh, that that was, that was a tough one because a lot of these, uh, surgery centers, you know, they take Medicare and Medicaid and an old requirement that was actually removed a year ago, um, for Medicare, that you have to have all your physicians have, physicians have admitting rights. Now, in concept, that sounds good, right? something happens to the patient, you can take them to the hospital. But if something happens with the patient, they go to the hospital anyway and they'll get standard of care. It doesn't really matter who's sending them over there. You know, when someone gets in a car accident, no one you know, or anything happens to them, they go to the hospital. So what I had to do was I had to find a surgery center that didn't take Medicare or Medicaid and didn't have those requirements. And I was able to, but it it took a lot of effort. And You know, this surgery center, it it was uh, built for an oral max patient center. So I've essentially been slowly putting a surgical equipment in there and it's a process. You know, I don't have everything I need right now. There's certain things I can't do because I don't, I don't have the the tools that I need. You know, I'm just gradually, you know, like I just bought a full size C-arm, you know, a month back. I refurbished, of course. Um, But that's a process and, and, and that's been difficult.
0: Sure. So does that by definition limit you to essentially all outpatient surgery?
2: The way the model is, it's essentially yeah, all outpatient surgery. I don't really have a strong desire to do inpatient surgery. I'm not really set up for that. So if, I'm, if you're working in the world of cash, to keep costs low, uh, you really can't be doing things inside a hospital system where you have no control over the billing or the
0: cost. In Colorado, are you able to do a 23-hour observation or keep folks overnight in a surgery center? I know that varies state by state. Yeah.
2: You can do that, and this place is capable of that. But yeah, it was a hard problem to solve. Not as easy as I thought. And that's part the thing about creating a new model or new way of doing things. You come into these roadblocks, you didn't think they were there. They were that were there. Sometimes they're easy to get over, sometimes they seem impossible. But I found with enough time and effort you usually can figure these things out.
0: The hospital credentialing admitting part definitely seems like yeah. you know, it would be one of the stickiest things. In terms of, you know, as you say, if there was an issue, which admittedly is a very, very rare fraction of the time, has there been any push back in your community from orthopods or hospitals or, or anybody about what you're doing?
2: No, not yet. I don't think they're really aware of what I'm doing, so I mean, I kind of stay <laughs> off still the radar, under the radar.
0: Yeah, I'm just, that's awesome.
2: I'm, I, at least, right, you know, at least right now. I mean, look, I don't affiliate with any insurance companies or hospital systems. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I'm, you know, I opt out of Medicare. I'm, I'm off grade, which is where I like to be. They're not really paying too much attention to me. When I start disrupting them eventually, then maybe they will. By then, it'll be too late for them.
0: So for physicians or surgeons listening to this, talk to me a little bit about logistics. With your EMR, are you giving people CPT and ICD-10 codes that they're then taking back and getting reimbursement from insurance companies sometimes for for populations that you take care of that may be insured? How do you get labs, imaging, uh, DME, all those sorts of things?
2: So generally, I'm not generating those ICD and CPT codes. I mean, if you're seeing someone for cash, there's no need to. You know, those CPT codes are owned by the AMA, and that's the insurance world. I mean, I'm not in that world, so I don't need to do any of that. And sometimes it's as simple as me seeing them. At the end of the visit, they give me, you know, they pay for the visit, either by credit card or by cash. And that's the end of the, you know, that's the end of the financial transaction. Um, that being said, when I say cash, I just mean really not insurance. So, there's such an apparatus of billing for insurance. Cash can mean anything that's not insurance. So, that does mean cash. But I also take medical liens as well. What that means is that if someone's, let's say, in an accident or a car accident, they've got a case going on, I can essentially put my payment a lien on that medical case. Meaning that when it settles, I'll get paid. Which could be a year, or two years. Something like that. But I don't need the overhead to collect. And for me, that works fine. So, then I'll generate some CPT or codes. But Nobody's auditing the chart, you know. I just say this is what my fee is and this is the time I spend and I think that's fair. And, um,
0: sure. you know, And your, your patient's nobody, agree it's not to like that the you a transaction. saying you didn't
2: do, right? It's not like just saying, hey, you didn't, you know, you didn't fill out the review of systems or whatnot. So I don't need to generate that. As far as figuring out imaging, you know, I'll see patients at an imaging center and they have some offices that aren't really used. And it's all cash prices. So the beauty about that is, if I say someone needs an MRI, I can get an MRI the same day, and it's you know much less than it would be through insurance, especially if they have a high deductible. So you're paying someone paying three fifty for an MRI. If you have insurance, if you have a high deductible, you could pay a thousand dollars same MRI, and I don't have to spend an hour on the phone, um, you know, talking to one of the big insurance plans, you know, trying to convince you know a nurse who's five states away. If somebody needs an MRI based on the exam, I did. So that's certainly a benefit. You know, as far as labs, um, there's a local primary care doctor. Who, if someone needs labs, I'll send them over there. And that usually takes care of that. And you can get pretty low negotiated lab costs. And DME, um, I basically just bought some DME and I, and I carry it around with me. And if I think I need to use it, then, you know, it's not super expensive. I can, you know, give out a wrist brace or a splinter or something like that. Um, so those, those problems aren't, they weren't super difficult to solve. And I think at least in the world of, uh, you know, direct payments or cash, um, the imaging thing is a lot easier. But, yeah, certainly if someone says, I had a fall and I hurt my elbow, I'm going to say, well, you need X-rays before I can see him, you, you know, and I'll send them to imaging before I see him or I'll see them at the imaging center.
0: At least on my radar, it, it seems like, too, a lot of these imaging centers have definitely made a push toward having cash pricing available for folks that are uninsured or exactly what you described a situation where they're insured and have a super high deductible and it's actually cheaper to pay for the study outright than to pay their copay or deductible on an insurance priced exam.
2: I mean, that's the insanity of it, right? I mean, not like it was 20 years ago where, you know, you had a good insurance plan wide network, low deductible and kinda of just paid for stuff. You don't have that. I mean now you have high deductibles, networks are razor can you have no idea what you're gonna be paying. So even if you do have a good insurance plan, it may not cover anything. When you get in the world of, you know, cash, it may actually be less if you just pay out of pocket and it's easier for you, you'll get it faster and it's easier for the doctor too. It's just you just we just you just cut out the middleman that's really not adding any value. I think that kinda of comes back to the central the core of, you know, what I'm trying to do is cut out all these middlemen in the healthcare system that aren't adding any value. They're not adding anything to patient care. I mean, you look at some offices, they take a picture of their office staff and it looks like a football team. They've got so many people. And if, if your office picture looks like a football team, then you, you're going to have issues. You know, and most of those people are, are non-clinical. And you got to ask yourself, what are they really adding? What is all this really adding to the doctor-patient relationship? What do you really need? Well, you need a doctor or a provider. You need a patient. And it turns out you really don't need much else. And that's kind of what I've been doing. I mean, obviously, for surgery, you need a lot more staff. That's a different panel. But for most interactions, you really don't need all that stuff.
0: In a very broad sense, and and if you try to run them down a little bit by category in terms of demographics and what they're after and what these relationships are like, who are your patients in this model? It's a
2: great question. What my
0: patient population is.
2: So you know, like I don't take Medicare, so right away that cuts out mostly everybody over sixty-five, right? That cuts out a whole subsection of orthopedics i do see them sometimes um people you know over that age but you know it's because they're mobile they can't leave the house they really need someone to come see them most of the people i'm seeing are uninsured or they have insurance with a very high deductible or they're sometimes involved in some sort of like auto act so the population tends to be healthier uh and younger you know most people are probably around middle income i do see people on medicaid i don't take medicaid but i'll see them through one mechanism or another Sometimes I'll see very wealthy people. It's definitely not the norm. I know when I tell people what I do, they think I'm just being super rich, fancy people all the time. And that it happens, but that's not, you know, that's not what I normally do. That's not most of my patients. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have been in someone's house. I get in their house, I go in their elevator, inside their house, elevator squeaking. And she's like, Oh, I got to call the elevator guy. That's just not a problem I've ever had. <laughs> most people have. <laughs> but you know, you, you do see that or, you know, all walks of life. Um,
0: Especially doing house call if I'm you know looking at this from the sidelines of that would be my my gut reaction or my my feel of this is that you would have certain you know maybe high net worth individuals that for lack of a better term this becomes doordash for orthopedics and they can pay for a very high level of service that saves them a lot of time, but then that there's probably a, a middle ground of, of uninsured or underinsured or, or folks painted into these high deductible corners, if you will, that just need humanely priced care and, and need good service with it. And maybe that reaches into my next question about who are, who are your strategic partners? Do you have a lot of uh, MediShare type groups that... that- on a contract with you or where you're identified by them or by some of these direct primary care providers as being a, a resource for orthopedics? So
2: I definitely do go to direct primary care doctors, and they are a referral for me. me. Um, with the Medicare, that's been more of a work in progress. I've certainly tried to do that. Sometimes these relationships take time to get that going. My next real target is employers. Direct primary care doctors are doing this. And and I think they're really far ahead of us because they've had to be. So they've hit this kind of pain point squeeze, you know, in this volume insurance billing game where they're so unhappy that they've kind of had to find another way of doing it. Happy and also it doesn't financially work that well. So they've they've, they've kind of created their trailblaze to pass in direct primary care. I think orthopedics maybe eventually will get there. We just haven't hit that same pain point yet. We will, trust me, but we're not there yet. Health insurance is getting so expensive you think of it on the individual level but you got to remember employers are paying the brunt of it. So if you're working somewhere and you're not getting a raise it may not be because it may be you know part of the part one of the reasons could be because the premiums go up every 20 20% every year. So instead of you getting a raise a 20% goes to the health care company, you know, to the insurance company and the broker who sets this all up, they get paid a percentage of the premium. So they're not trying to stop a lot of employers are really getting squeezed. They're going, how can I contain these costs? And some, of, what some of them are starting to do is they go, you know what? I'm just going to pay for everything, out-of-pocket cash. I'll get a stop-loss insurance policy if things get too far out of hand. And um, they look for cash-based you know, solutions that provide direct contracting. And I think in the world of orthopedics, essentially as much as skeletal cost containment, that area hasn't really been tapped. So that's something that I'm working on. You know, but negotiating with employer groups is not something you kind of do overnight. It's something that takes time. But I I really think that's an area that needs to be explored. I mean, things are so crazy right now that what some employers will do is they'll pay for someone to get surgery, you know, down in Mexico or Costa Rica and they'll pay to fly, uh, their employee out and their employee's entire family out. And in some cases, they'll even fly the surgeon out from the United States. And that ends up being less expensive than doing it down the road at your local hospital. Things are kind of insane. And they're just trying to make some sense of the insanity and find some way to just prevent these costs from going off the rails. You know, my goal is to do that and to have these um, companies drop their insurance plans once they realize that they're not actually providing any value and that they're incredibly expensive. I think that would be a real win because these things aren't going to change unless something makes them change. And I don't think you can really do it from a legislation standpoint. I think it's got to be done from an economic standpoint.
0: I think you're exactly right. And it's curious that insurance or commercial insurance for health care really at its heart, I think, started as the, quote, major medical, if you will, which was that, mm-hmm. you know, most of my care I could I could handle. I needed to be able to budget for this and plan for this in my life. And it was affordable to some degree, and, and humanely priced, and I just needed insurance there for risk mitigation, car wrecks, cancer, things that were just uh, beyond what, what normal people could cover or afford if it happened to them, and then it evolved into something entirely uh, perverse and different, as you've described, so I think you're exactly right, and then I think the, the flip side of that is employers that are, like you said, get a stop-loss policy. They They can- they can buy all these services a lot cheaper and then just have a an additional reinsurance policy, if you will, for risk mitigation of really catastrophic events that are exceedingly rare.
2: I think when Medicare came out in, I think, 65, it kind of blew the doors open on all that. And that's when you saw prices rise a lot. And a lot was from physicians, you know, because at that time, Medicare would just pay reasonable and customary. Well, if you and the four other surgeons in town – you know, start charging more. I mean, well, then that's customary in that area, and then I think that all changed in the early '90s when they introduced the RVU system, and then it's kind of been clamping down since then. And it makes it tough because you know, if you're, you know, you end up working harder, and over time, and reimbursements only go down. So if you look at joints, right, and, and you know, I don't do any joints, but the reimbursement for joints, at least out here in Colorado, you get paid less dollar per dollar for doing a joint now than you did 20 years ago in the year 2000. And, and that just keeps trending down. And, you know, if you're a doctor and you're reliant on all these insurance payments, right? Because if Medicare makes that decision, a lot of insurance companies will say, we pay 120% of Medicare. You're kind of forced to take it. And like I said, as the overhead requirements go up, I think it's just a losing game, for the long run. not only financially, but just also frustrating. It's very frustrating. And, um, you know, all the mental strife that it causes. I mean, for you to know that you're working harder now and you're not doing as well and you don't get to spend as much time as you did maybe before. So that's kind of where I see that going and not just for joints, but really for all orthopedic procedures. I think ophthalmologists, now maybe one of you guys will know more than me, I think ophthalmologists used to get paid a real lot for doing cataracts in like the late 80s, early 90s. And at some point, Medicare clamped down on it and I think they get a fraction of what they did then. And so they moved it from hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, you know. Now then they start moving it into their offices. But, you know, where are they going to go next, their car? I mean, it's a losing battle.
1: Dr. Paul, when I lived in Miami, I I saw many a a doctor's office with a sign on it that said, uh, we do not carry malpractice insurance. And I was just curious, what does that landscape look like in the concierge world?
2: Malpractice can get so expensive in Florida, like I say, especially for OB-GYN. It's so seemingly expensive that the doctor will like, say, you know what? I'm putting all my assets in my my, my wife or my husband's name, and uh, I'm not carrying malpractice, and they end up not having any assets. So that's the strategy down there. Right. So yeah, for me, um it, it it took a fair amount of work to convince, uh, you know, find the appropriate broker who could find the appropriate underwriter that this actually isn't very high risk. I don't see that many people. I spend a long time with them. Communication is good. When communication is good, you usually go get students. But yeah, certainly starting out, p- purchasing a full-time orthopedic surgeon malpractice is super expensive. So that's not really what I did in the sense that I purchased a part-time, um, policy and that ends up being pretty affordable. And if you look at the amount of hours I work, it is part-time. I mean, I spend time working on the business, you know, just, but as far as patient care, I mean, it is part-time. So that was actually pretty affordable.
1: Two uh, strategic questions for you. The Surgery Center of Oklahoma has really tapped into this growing market for uh, price transparency, mm-hmm. uh, cash pay surgeries, uh, given the high deductibles. Do you see a possible strategic confluence between what you're doing and these uh, all-cash ASC models?
2: I think the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is like the model to kind of follow right now. And you got to remember for cash-based surgery, there's not that many places. So your catchment area is very large. I think that's something that I would like to build out here. Obviously, I'm working on that, and that just takes time, and, uh, you know, that's the eventual end goal. You know, and if you do it right, you'll get people from, you know, from all over the place. That's the business model of cash pay. You know, and if you start combining it with insurance pay models, it's hard, it's hard in any business to get two business models working at the same time that are different fundamentally. So the benefit of cash pay is you don't need all this overhead, you know, and of all these coders and fillers. So it, it's sometimes difficult to do both at the same time, um, you know. And, and it's kind of sad in a certain sense that if someone says, hey, I do want to pay cash for this carpal tunnel, how much is it going to cost? And those surgery centers say, oh, I don't know. You know, nobody knows. Like, How do you not know? Well, anesthesia costs this. It this. Why can't you bundle it all together and give somebody a reasonable price, you know? But they can't do it. It's not built for that. It's just opaque pricing where they keep everybody in the dark on purpose. And if, if, if you're in the world of insurance, things are covered. They're not covered. But if you're in the world of cash, you really get creamed by these billing practices because you just don't know what you're paying. You know, what else do you buy where you don't know what you're paying? If you're buying a car or a house or anything, buying, you know, some apples at the supermarket, I mean, you know what it costs. Why is it that for, you know, surgical things or in the healthcare world, you just, nobody can tell you. You know, or if they give you a quote, it's not binding. I mean, what's that worth <laughs> you know? But yeah, 30% of Oklahoma, as far as I'm aware, just does cash. And then that's all they do. If you start doing both, I think it's hard to do both at the same time. I think one of them will ultimately win out and it will likely be the insurance model because that's where all your resources will go.
1: Yeah, I was thinking possibly a, kind of a joining of these two mindsets of, of having a cash pay uh, concierge model Feeding the all cash ASC and kind of joining forces to do it all under one roof. So
2: I think that ultimately I may end up going to that sort of model. But like you know, when figuring all this stuff out, it's piecemeal. You know, solutions that come up aren't perfect solutions all the time. Right. And I kind of just have to build as I go. I mean, when I started, I mean, when I first started, right? I had no idea how to get any patients or do anything. I said, oh, yeah, hotels, right? Because at this point, I'm just doing traveling, right? And I'm like, hotels would be a good thing. So I went to some nicer hotels, and I'm like, hey, this is what I do. If anyone you know, gets injured or sick or whatever. And, like, they just wanted me to leave. They did not care what I was saying at all. I gave them business cards. They probably threw them in the garbage, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, that doesn't work. Let me try this. I'm like, oh, CrossFit. Yeah, CrossFit people get hurt all the time. I'm like, this will be good. So I go to a few CrossFit gyms. And, um, you know, I talk to them and they're very nice and they're very, you know, you know, like, listen to what I have to say. And then never get anything from them, you know? And I'm like, I realize I'm like, crosses people hate going to the doctor. They won't go to the doctor unless their arm is falling off. And even then, they probably don't want to go. And it's just been kind of, you know, like walking, you know, like trying to feel your way around the dark to figure out, like, what actually works here. It's a lot of trial and error. And I think any adventure like this is a lot of trial and error. But, you know, you can have a lot of failures, but you only need a few successes to really do well, as long as you know, you, you know you're know you smart about it. So be careful who you uh, contract with.
1: I'm a bit older than you, and I remember a show called Trapper John, M.D., and the doctor had an RV parked out in the parking lot at the hospital. And, and I'm just curious, is this uh, on the radar of creating kind of a mobile office uh, to have some of the imaging equipment and be able to bring an office to somebody's house?
2: Yes and no. I mean... So when I first started, I only I didn't have an office, so mobile had to be it. And there are certainly people that are like, oh, I'd love that you can come into my house. And it worked out really well. But there's other people, and you know, for me, the cost is the same. Whether I go to your house, whether you come to the office, it's the same cost. that I built it that way. They would rather see you in an office. So I don't really, okay. it's hard to say. But I will say that I do carry around a lot of things, through, you know, steroid injections, casting planning. I can do mostly anything you do in an office. And recently, I got an ultrasound, a point-of-care ultrasound, and that's been phenomenal. Because, you know, now I can look at someone's rotator cuff while I'm at their house. Or, you know, if they think they're, they injured their SL ligament in their wrist, I can have them clench their fist and I can look at it right there. And I'm still learning it. And, it, you know, I didn't graduate too long ago, but ultrasound just wasn't part of the education. And I really think that It probably should be because there's so much value of just being able to image these things immediately and increase the accuracy of your injections. That's kind of where I'm at as far as like mobile care. You know, at some point, will I add more to that? Possible. But right now, that's kind of where it's at.
0: What's been the response from patients just overall to this model and what have been the wins?
2: They love it. I mean, they love it because when I'm seeing them, you know, this isn't a short visit. You're looking at 45 minutes plus or minus depending on the person. They get to sit down and talk, and I think they really like just being able to spend time with, you know, the doctor with me and being able to have all their questions answered. I mean, when I'm done, there's no question And if there are questions, I give them my cell phone number, and they can call or text, and I encourage them to do that. But some people may say, oh, I don't know if I would do that. But all right, let me ask you this. So if you see a patient and you're delivering care, and they go home, and they have a question, what's the process for them to get an answer? They call the office, the front desk is going to transfer them to the medical assistant, and the medical assistant has to find you and ask you the questions, and you've got to tell the medical assistant the answer, and the medical assistant has to go and tell the patient. You're still answering the question, it's going through just through like multiple people. And half the time, if you see like, if you look at Google reviews of orthopedic practices, complaints are, it's communication, it's all communication. So why go through all that? I just have them call or text me, and you know what? I don't really get that many calls or texts because they spend a long time with them, and they have their questions answered. So they really like that, you know, even if it's just a text here or there. Just being able to just, like this goes back to the relationship-based model of care, um, which I just think is so much more powerful than your standard transactional uh, appointment. You know, if you're in that world that, and that's all you know, you're like, well, what else would I do in that time? But, you know, in that mo- in the model as it exists, the transactional model, there's no time for patient education. Insurance isn't going to pay you for it, and it's not factored in. And I think that's super important part of the visit. What's the expectations? What do they need to know? Explaining things. And you can try and do that in a short visit, but it's tough. I mean, system does not really allow you to do that, especially when your clinical manager books two people at eight, two people at eight. 15. I mean, you know, your PA seeing all the new patients. I mean, it's not the same as being able to just sit down and spend time. And I do think there is a difference with that.
0: I think you're right. And I I think that physicians and surgeons are pushed towards more volume and some of the educational parts uh, either just uh, go away or at best, they get delegated to a nurse, a case manager, someone else, and and in a really well-designed system, they understand that practice and they know what's going on and and can educate and can answer questions. But there's certainly the possibility of gaps and and it's certainly not going to be the the same knowledge base, so I think patients do appreciate what you're talking about, and I think it is a different model. And when you've eliminated a lot of the overhead cost, then you know maybe it's effective to do that again.
2: Yeah, it's just it's a different way of uh, of thinking about it. I think you'll find that if you if you kind of slow things down and spend more time, which is impossible in the insurance world, you, you know you'll go out of business. You can't do it. Um, you'll find that these subtle differences um, actually really add up to make into something significant. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting point you brought up with this volume and you kind of, you're expected to this volume. So in the ecosystem that it is, I mean, surgeon is measured by basically the worth of how many surgeries they're doing and how fast they're doing. It. So there is, I think sometimes there's also a conflict of interest there. Not with everybody. If a surgeon's whole practice is based on me doing bunches, uh, surgeons doing a bunch of surgeries, that's when you start to find guys whose their indications get a little bit loose. You know, they start booking things a little bit more than they should have. And some people won't. And then the problem is if they're not doing that, they get pushed out by their partners, or get pushed out by the hospital system. You know, I heard a story one time of a, was a prominent shoulder-elbow surgeon. He wasn't doing as much volume as uh, the hospital administrators would have liked. And he's like, well, why didn't you operate on this guy? He's like, well, he didn't meet the indications for surgery. Well, you know, you need to expand your indications. And, you know, that, whether it's explicit like that, it, it, it's either explicit or it's implicit. But, you know, that's happening. I think you know patients are sometimes becoming privy to that as well, and I think that's a tough spot to put a surgeon in. And as a surgeon, that's a tough spot to be in, knowing that if you know if I don't keep my blo- if I don't keep my blocks full, you know I'm going to have issues. I mean, that's a conflict of interest.
0: I think that's very definitely a concern, and I think that it's easy to envision that happening if you if you look at a lot of models of what have happened, what's happened in other specialties where a lot of private equity money has come in in terms of even dentistry and pain management now and some in ophthalmology, dermatology, some of these type things, and it does encourage broader indications and more more service to make more money. That can definitely happen. Very broad and very conceptually, to play the other side of this, I think there's historically been, been criticism of, of medicine as a, a cottage industry where you had all of these doctors that were basically you know doing in some sense whatever whatever they wanted and we're not always we as a profession we're maybe not great at policing ourselves as far as as what was going on and what was out there and, and so some of this uh, commoditization this this corporatization of medicine you know, maybe their argument is that we're making it more standardized, we're, we're getting best practices in. One, is that real? Is that e- even a thing? And two, you know, how do you account for this if, if you're sort of democratizing and decentralizing things the way you might in this uh, direct care model?
2: The doctor-patient relationship, I think, is a fundamental relationship, and I think really the doctor really wants to get the patient better. I think that's usually almost always the case, right? When you start bringing in all this private equity and people that are multiple levels removed from the patient care, they don't care about any of that. They may say they do, but they don't. They're just trying to make money. So they'll say whatever they need to or do whatever they need to to make money. I'll give you another example. This is a particularly kind of mortifying one. So I know a family doctor. She used to work out in Kansas and somewhere in Kansas, I'm not sure where, and she used to do delivery, says, you know, a family doctor would do in a rural area. And she had a CRNA that was supposed to help her, you know, if they knew she needed to do C-sections. He was supposed to be on call all the time, but for whatever reason he decided he wasn't going to be, I don't really know. But what ended up happening is she'd see, uh, she'd see somebody, um, and then if they needed a C-section and, and the nurse anesthetist wasn't available, she would send them down the road to the hospital system, right? Because what is she supposed to do, right? You know, she doesn't have an anesthesiologist to do C-sections. So she had a meeting with the CEO and the CEO says, Why you says we you know, we're not making we're not making enough money on these. we're not making any money with the delivery, we're you know, we're losing it on all the you know the prenatal care. You know, why are you doing this? And she says, Well, I don't have this anesthesiologist and I can't, you know, do the C section, right? Like you wouldn't do surgery, I wouldn't do surgery without anesthesiologist, you know, in most cases. I mean if it's, a, if it's an invasive surgery like that. And what he told her is he said, Next time that happens you inject lidocaine and you cut the baby out. So Wow So I'll say it again, you inject lidocaine and you cut the baby out. You know, so these are the types of, and that may be an extreme example, but you know, I just don't believe them. I just don't think they're interested in that. I think they're interested in making as much money as possible. They don't really care about much else.
0: Yeah, I think that's a concept that's that's pretty easy to believe. I don't, I don't think anybody's going to fight you a lot on that statement. So, from a consumer basis, do we then, with the internet now, do we have enough access to information that the patient slash healthcare consumer is then able to? regulate quality and that as a market will will regulate itself through reviews and, and through digital word of mouth, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And like that's a very difficult question. You know, a hard, you know, thing to figure out is like how do you regulate quality? Well, you know, some go through medical school and they go through training and they pass their exam. You know, but as you know, the the quality from one provider to the next isn't always equal. You know, I, I like to think most of them are very competent and you know, usually very good at what they do. But certainly if there is free market forces in play, you know, if there's a doc who's not making very many patients happy and you can interpret that how you will, then they will get less business. But I mean, you're talking about a pure free market and that is not what we have and I don't think we'll have that anytime soon in medicine. You know, this insurance model is not going anywhere for a very long time. I think you'll find small pockets of defectors like me and direct primary care docs and others who decide to leave that and have this kind of small free market bubble. If you've got good insurance, you know, like I said, I'm not usually, you know, you can submit for out-of-network benefits, but a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to go somewhere that takes their insurance, and then I encourage them to do that, and that's fine. I, I do think that there does need to be some more little decentralization. know, you have either, if you're an orthodox, you can either work for a gigantic hospital system who doesn't care about you. Or you work for a giant private practice company, a private practice, where it may be similar. You know, the, and you're finding that these private practices, solo, I mean, that's not around anymore, you know, besides someone who's doing, you know, went rogue like me. And you find these larger groups, and they're having a tougher time to survive, you know, competing with its volume and decreasing reimbursements, higher overhead costs. And they're getting swallowed up by, you know, these uh, hostile systems, and there's just these massive conglomerates. And I don't think that's really good for specialty orthopedics or probably any other specialty. I think that doctors need to be independent to a certain extent, and that allows them to just do what they do. And when you start constraining them in these ways, I think it does affect care. And I mean, look, docs aren't happy with this either. You know, Most docs are, honest to God, pretty miserable. It's the highest suicide rate of any profession. I mean, there's a reason for that. And I think at its core, it's an awesome job, and I really like doing it. But I removed all the parasites, so I, I can practice how I see fit. With all the parasites still present, you can't make too many decisions about how you want to practice. And the screwed up part is that it'll take away all your control of your practice. They tell you how many people you're going to see in A, B, and C, and what you need to document, but nobody wants to touch the responsibility. No, doc, that's yours. We're not touching that. So you lose all the control of your practice, but yet you keep all of the responsibility. Nobody wants to touch that, right? And that makes a very difficult situation for a doctor, and that makes it hard. You know, you, you, you go into this because you want to help people, make them better. And you have no time to spend with people. Even if you do a successful surgery, they come back and they say, Hey, I feel so much better. Thank you. You're like, okay. Great. Bye. Or, you know, you spend two minutes or your PA sees them. You know, a lot of the fundamentals of, you know, why this is a good job and why it's enjoyable you know, kind of have been shifted away.
1: Dr. Paul, just uh, absolute respect. I think uh, both of us know this took a lot of courage and and we can go Colorado here to paddle upstream on your mission to reinvigorate the whole doctor-patient relationship. How do people in our audience learn more about you and Easy Orthopedics?
2: Right. So I've got a pretty good website called easyorthopedics.com. You can go there and learn all about it. You know, I've got, you know, I make YouTube videos with content regularly, Twitter handles, you know, any sort of modern business that you pretty much need that. So there's a contact form there if you want to contact me directly. I always look at that. So that, that's the best way to get in contact and learn about, you know, what I'm doing. You know, the best way to support the movement is, you know, to really kind of know that just using your insurance and going out. Insurance doesn't equate to healthcare. Just because you have good insurance doesn't mean it's not like you have good healthcare. They're different. And just to know that there's other options available.
1: I want to pivot just for one second and uh, tie us up with yeah. a, with a, a quote that I read. If only I had been given a copy of Dr. Paul's book before I entered medical school, it would have saved me so much heartache and time from taking MCATs, through selecting residency, and even achieving board certification. Not having this book. I felt like others kept a secret they didn't want you to know. Well, thanks to Dr. Paul, the secret is out. And that was Dr. Polanski on Amazon. I was reading yesterday just one of many glowing reviews on Amazon surrounding your book. Uh, so you got into medical school. Now what? A guide to preparing for the next four years. Uh, I didn't want to let the show get away with us without asking. Uh, you know, it's no, <laughs> it's no small feat to write a book. So congratulations. Uh, what, what inspired Great. you to write it?
2: Well, I don't know. I guess it's just kind of me. I wrote that during medical school, and I kind of finished it during residency. Um, I, I just didn't think there was a good guidebook out there. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. And if it fails, and then it fails. And I guess that's essentially what I'm doing now. Um, but, yeah, that was a, I just figured I'd write this guidebook. I think it sold, I don't know, maybe around 1,500 copies over the years. You know, I don't do as much marketing with it as I should, or I don't do any anymore. Um, but that was something that I, I wanted to put out there. I guess that's part of me and my mentality. I guess that's why I don't really fit too well into the system. It's like, I, I can't I can't keep my head down and just, you know, grind away. With hospital systems, you have going in, you have your creativity and ability to take risks, and that'll make you successful as an entrepreneur in the business. And when you're training in the hospital system, they crush that. If you think there's a hospital way of doing things, there's a system process that you think is totally bonkers, and you say it's totally bonkers, they go, yeah, well, that's how we've always done it. And not just that. They beat it out of you. That's, you know, that's what happened to me early in my resume. I got in trouble a lot as an intern. Not for medical stuff, but because I would see things I thought were ridiculous, and I would say it, and they'd be like, oh, you can't say that. And so when the doc gets out of training, it ends up killing your, you know, kills your creativity, kills your ability to kind of you know, and prevent you from being successful in the kind of a business entrepreneurial way. And That's like, that's built into the education part of it. I think that's important to know because without creativity and about it, really take risks, succeeding a business will be very difficult. I mean, that's what all the people on the hospital administration are doing. You know, they're doing all those things, you know, and they say, oh, you just, you just practice, we'll take care of everything else. But that's dangerous mentality. You know, they'll, they'll, they're not looking out for your interests or really your patients.
1: So can we be looking forward to a? So you got a concierge orthopedic practice now? What forthcoming on Amazon?
2: After I wrote that one, I'm like, I don't think I'll write another one again. But uh, we'll see. I don't know who would buy it. It'd be like an audience of ten people, but I'm not. I'm not writing it off.
1: Well, Doctor Paul, I shared your post on Easy Orthopedics on LinkedIn, and I got eight thousand likes in a very short period of time. You're clearly onto something, and. Dr. Barber and I both wish you great success and and really appreciate you coming on to to share your story.
2: Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate you giving me uh, the time and the platform. And I think it's important for people to start kind of thinking differently about what we're doing.
1: Dr. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your inspiring story. Really exciting what you're doing. Takes a lot of perseverance. Takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. And a huge thank you to Dr. Matt Barber for coming back on the show. Your wisdom and insight are always appreciated. Thank you so much. Great proverb, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors They succeed the original peer review. So as we go into this week, let's be thinking about our Dirty Dozen, so to speak, our Oceans 11. Who are they? Do you have people on your team that you can subject your hopes, your dreams, your plans to for good, solid peer review? I love what Dr. Paul said about thinking differently. And you know, thinking differently can be good. It can be bad as well, right? That's why we need the counsel of many. I hope you all have an awesome week. I appreciate each and every one of you. I hope you're safe this week. Hope you're successful and wish you all the best in your selling